I do regrettably feel like in general, COVID has disproportionately benefited large brands. You know, very appropriately, worldwide governments have figured out how to provide assistance. From my perspective, not enough assistance. But when they put that assistance out there, the fact that a significant chunk, or in many cases, a majority of that money went to these bigger businesses, both it seems unfair and it's actually not prudent because those businesses had other ways to survive, whereas the small businesses often didn't. Hello, everybody. I'm Kelly Martin, and you're listening to Making It Work, made possible by FedEx. Over the last 16 episodes, we've brought you entrepreneurial insights you can't find anywhere else. From solopreneurs to partnerships, generational business owners to founders of social enterprises, we've flipped through our Rolodex to find you entrepreneurs who really do tell it like it is. As our New Year's resolution here at Making It Work was to embrace change, this episode will be a little different. We speak to retail expert and podcaster Jason Goldberg, who tells us what companies and consumers should expect in 2021 and beyond. So is COVID-19 the final nail in the coffin for brick and mortar? And what can businesses do to adapt? Asking the questions is Tom Scallon. I'm here with retail expert Jason Goldberg. Jason, how's it going? Terrific. Thanks so much for having me on the show. You're very, very welcome. It's, it's it's a pleasure to have you here. Speaking to us so soon after the holidays, how was your holiday season? What did you do? Yeah, uh, well, I think like all of us, it was not my traditional way of spending the holidays, but uh, I did get a little bit of a break and got to spend some time with my, my wife and child who are just as lovely as everyone told me they were. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was great. Thanks. Okay. So for those who aren't aware of your reputation for retail geekery. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Uh, well, as you sort of alluded to, I do have sort of a moniker on the internet. I'm Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and I'm a, a fourth generation retailer. I, I uh, grew up working in family businesses and, um, you know, just had a, a great passion for retail. And I've been lucky enough to stumble into uh, an actual career in retail. So uh, early in my career, I worked for a bunch of retailers, some of which uh, grew to be quite large. Um, and for the last 10 or 15 years, I've primarily been a consultant. So I, I work for a, a large international agency called the Publicis Group, and I lead commerce strategy for the group. And so I get to work with all the groups, uh, great clients that are that are retailers and brands that are primarily interested in selling through retail. I think people will be very interested to know that you're fourth generation retailer. What was your family business? Yeah, well, it evolved a little bit over time. Uh, my great grandfather actually uh, immigrated to the United States and opened originally a fruit cart. Like he was selling fresh produce off a cart on the street, um, first in New York, and then later migrated to the West Coast to Seattle. And the the uh, over the the history of the family, the the fruit cart grew into a grocery store, uh, which then added a, a jewelry component, and ultimately became a a small chain of uh, jewelry stores in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. Um, and then uh, a number of my uncles, in the early 90s, there was this new genre of business that was emerging uh, called video rental stores. And my my uncles were early adopters of that trend and opened a, a few video stores that were ultimately purchased by a an entrepreneur and they, my uncles included me in that transaction. So they sold me to, to this entrepreneur named Wayne Heisinger and that those video stores became a blockbuster video. So in a world full of consultants who are also entrepreneurs with you, the entrepreneur bit is actually true. It is. Although, um, <laughs> I, I, for most of my, my life, I've, I've, uh, worked with others. And so I have, I have great respect for, you know, people that are putting their own, own resources on the line, um, in a more direct way than I, I do as a consultant. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't want to claim, uh, legit creds, uh, amongst all my, all my friends that are, you know, really risking everything on their business. Okay. Well, let's at the very least use your expertise to shed some light on what has been, I think 2020 has been quite unremarkable year, would you say, Jason? Yeah, pretty, pretty hum. I think it played out mostly how I predicted it would in January. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So within the context of, of course, the craziness that was 2020 and the beginning of 2021 as well, how has the retail landscape changed in your eyes? 
Yeah, well, it's been really interesting to see how the retail landscape has changed this year, primarily as a result of COVID. In my estimation, it really didn't, COVID didn't really dramatically change consumer behavior or fundamentally alter the direction that uh, of retail trends. What it, what it did more than anything is it dramatically accelerated trends that we were already seeing in the marketplace. Um, so I, I really uh, sort of, my metaphor for COVID is sort of a, a time machine um, so I, I think of that that hot tub time machine that all of us, you know, depending on where we lived, sometime in in February or March, we stumbled into the hot tub and got propelled ten years into the future. You know, a lot of the things that became relevant are all things that the smart people in our industry thought were going to happen, but they thought were going to take much longer to happen. It very much seems so. It's people have been ordering their groceries online, for instance, but it feels like supermarkets have been unable to cope with the demand. They just weren't expecting it, even though they had warehouses, they had websites. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, everyone thinks their own problems are the most acute. You know, one of the fun things about being a consultant is I have a broad portfolio of clients in different industries. And so I I certainly have clients in industries that were very derogatorily affected by COVID, right? Like uh, hotel chains and airlines and, and, you know, apparel retailers, all of which haven't fared particularly well. But I also do have a lot of clients that are, you know, in categories that really benefited from from COVID, like grocery. But per your point, none of them have had any fun through any of this, right? Like it's it's been a huge challenge, you know, just desperately trying to uh, keep up with demand and, you know, keep up with the changes they need to make to their business to stay viable, like even though demand for their products is at an all-time high. And, you know, of course layer on the extra pressure that it it truly doesn't feel like people are, you know, just motivated to be profitable and run successful businesses. They do want that, but they're simultaneously also, you know, trying to help people in a really difficult time and make sure that, you know, everyone stays fed and and healthy. Were you the retail consultant telling your clients, I told you so? Were they perhaps dragging their feet a little bit when it came to online? So truth be told, I have certainly thought, uttered the words in my head. I told you so numerous times uh, in some of these categories. Some of my clients are, are super progressive and way ahead of me. Um, but there are certainly clients that, you know, we, we'd been advocating for, uh, you know, more investment in, in digital, for example, than, than they were prepared to make. And, you know, as the pandemic has played out, like the companies that had more infrastructure and investment in digital have disproportionately benefited. So so in your mind, you do want to say, I told you so to some of the those those companies that didn't invest as much, but I've I refrained from actually saying it. So hopefully they're not listening. <laughs> um, and and truth be told, these are all super hard decisions, and and every business has lots of uses for the limited capital that they have. And so I I, I, I do appreciate the the challenges and conundrums that they had around, you know, making that investment, and fortunately or unfortunately, the the calculus for how you'll benefit from those investments has changed. Well, making it work is a small business podcast. Twenty twenty has seen a boom in sales for like huge digitally native brands. To what extent has this success been shared by small businesses? Yeah, unevenly would be, I guess, be the answer. I I do regrettably feel like in general, COVID has disproportionately benefited large brands. Like I think a lot of the endemic things that have changed um, have fundamentally helped very large retailers and brands. And it's it's frankly helped the the businesses that are best capitalized um, have been in the best position to weather the the storm and take advantage of the opportunities, um, which I, I do view as unfortunate. Of course, you know, small businesses are are the majority of businesses and they're the lifeblood of the industry. So I, I do think it's critical that they be successful and healthy and vibrant. And a, a concern has been that, you know, this has been an extra burden on small businesses. But in my mind, there is a silver lining. I, I do see areas where, um, these challenges have created new opportunities for small businesses. And, and certainly in the area I play in digital, one, one of the interesting phenomenons has been, you know, that the big players were already disproportionately winning. Like in North America, the majority of e-commerce traffic goes to Amazon, right? And they win the majority of searches on Google. Um, and they're, they're, of course, a very large company. 
Um, but an interesting effect of the pandemic is even companies as big as Amazon ran into supply chain constraints and logistics uh, capacity constraints. And they, they were forced to really reduce their service levels and turn down business that they would have liked to had. And that that created um, a significant opportunity for new businesses and, and many small businesses to come in and fill that gap. And so there were, you know, a ton of small businesses that got their first search traffic from Google um, as a result of Amazon slowing down their shipments of non-essential goods, for example. And, and certainly there are a bunch of small businesses that, that found their, their third party selling business on Amazon was, you know, significantly benefited from COVID. Most of the entrepreneurs we feature on Making It Work are digitally native, and I would say are generally towards the younger end of the spectrum of entrepreneurs in the US. Do you think that your more traditional mom and pop stores will have found it very, very difficult to just adapt overnight? Yeah, absolutely. So like a couple of things happened early on, right? So, you know, the vast majority of all restaurants in the world are run by small business, single location operators. And overnight, we went from a place where, you know, patrons like drove to this to the restaurant and dined in the restaurant. And that was an important part of the experience to a a place where the only way that restaurant was going to have an opportunity to sell meals is if they took orders online and delivered them to people's homes or allowed consumers to come and pick them up. And so, you know, there was this very overt pivot uh, to digital being the front door of every restaurant in America. And many of these restaurants were not run, you know, people didn't get into the restaurant business because they were particularly enamored with digital, right? Like, you know, they were, they're more likely uh, enamored with basil. And so they, you know, These were not early digital adopters. Most of them had not invested a lot in making their menus available online or making their business findable on Google. Those were things that were nice to haves in the pre-COVID era, but suddenly they were an imperative. And so, like, unfortunately, the easiest way for all these small businesses to solve that digital gap that they had, that, that technical debt they had, was to pay someone else to do it for them, right? So we saw a boom of these intermediaries in the restaurant business. Um, in North America, it's companies like DoorDash and Uber Eats that you know would put menus online and take orders and, and deliver them. And they, they solved the customer experience problem for all these small businesses. But of course, they, they took a significant commission on every sale, which the restaurant business is already not um, super appealing margins. Uh, and so the you know this this extra tax on all these small businesses was a huge burden, and and that was really unfortunate. So I look at that as an area where small businesses' lack of digital savvy was sort of painful. In in North America, twenty five percent of all grocery retailers are independent grocery stores, and grocery was a is a perfect example of a category where, for all intents and purposes, nobody shopped online for groceries before COVID. Like digital penetration was hovering around 2% in in the United States. Um, And suddenly, for safety reasons, everyone became an online grocery shopper and wanted to shop online. And so if you were Whole Foods owned by Amazon or you were Kroger or Walmart, you either already had a lot of digital initiatives in place that you got to leverage or you were able to swiftly make big digital investments. But if you were, you know, a small mom and pop grocer, again, that, that probably wasn't your core competency. And so you probably... Um, got left further behind um, in terms of digital experiences, which is really unfortunate. Say you've weathered the storm, perhaps that was with uh, help from the government, or perhaps you just started using DoorDash. What could a traditional family-run small business do today, and preferably inexpensively, to help future-proof themselves? Yeah. Um, well, so if I'm a small business and I've weathered the storm, you know, perhaps using some of these third-party intermediaries to help me with digital, um, I, I need to start thinking about a post-COVID era in which all of my customers have learned to use and appreciate these digital amenities. Uh, different people would agree on the time horizon, but let, let's even you know take the most pessimistic view and say it's it's four years before all the health impacts and economic impacts of COVID play out, right? Four years from now, it's still going to be the case that many more people know how to order their groceries online than did before. And they're going to want to continue to do that. They're going to want to continue to know uh, what products are available on the shelf before they take the time to drive to the store. 
you know, consumers will continue to buy a bigger portion of their meals for home consumption and delivery than they did before COVID. And so if I'm a small business that had to outsource digital during COVID, what I need to start thinking about is what's my plan uh, to to bring that capability back in-house so that I can minimize those commissions, right? And if I was a small business that relied on a, an intermediary like DoorDash, that customer is really a customer of DoorDash is not my restaurant. And so my biggest strategy is how do I convert that customer from a DoorDash customer into a Jason's restaurant customer? And so, you know, I need, I need to be thinking about what my opportunities are to communicate with that customer. What can I put in the bags that are being delivered by DoorDash? What if I get to send any communication to them? How, how can I meet that customer and start building a relationship so that in the long run, that relationship is between me and my customer and not between an intermediary and my customer. And so I'm encouraging entrepreneurs at this point, you know, that did whatever they had to do to survive. And I certainly don't begrudge anyone for doing that. Um, start thinking about how to optimize for this new future and, and make the unit economics more appealing and, and you know, put yourself in a better position to, to thrive in the digitally accelerated post-COVID era. Which sectors have had the hardest time adapting? Yeah, well, it's funny. So, the, I mean, there's kind of two, two factors to think about. Before COVID, there's, there's sectors that were heavily digitally mature and customers had already learned uh, to primarily use digital to shop for them. Uh, so they were less affected by COVID. And then there were categories that were very digitally immature and did not have significant digital shoppers. Those tended to be the categories that were most affected. So for example, if you were in the book industry or the video industry, pretty much everyone had already learned to shop digitally for those products, right? So you were less impacted. If you were in the the consumer electronics or toys or apparel, you were sort of in the middle um, in terms of digital adoption um, and, and the acceleration to digital, you know, had a moderate impact on you. But if you were a grocery retailer or an auto dealership, you were dramatically impacted by COVID's acceleration of digital because, you, you know, individual car dealerships did not believe that consumers wanted to buy cars online and and independent grocery stores did not believe people wanted to order bananas online right and so neither of those industries had really made investments um, most of their customers didn't know how to shop digitally and and things just worked so as covid forced all the customers to learn how to shop digitally they often were forced to pick new providers that offered those digital amenities so so the, those pre-pandemic digitally immature industries like food, like auto, like health and personal care um, were the most impacted. And then, of course, there was just this um, shift in consumer behaviors as a result of, of COVID. So, you know, we all consumed a lot more calories at home. So businesses that sold food for home consumption really benefited from COVID. None of us had to dress up to impress our friends at the office. And so categories like formal apparel were really hurt by COVID. So it's, to me, it's the kind of intersection of those two trends. How digitally native was your industry before COVID? And were you on the beneficial side or the detrimental side of the shifts in consumer spending patterns? Let's talk about debts. I consider it a little bit like the elephant in the room, we, we have tried to address it in this podcast and, and people have told us that they've used credit cards, for instance, to kickstart their business. Personal debt in the US and also parts of Europe like the UK was already sky high before the pandemic. And a lot of small businesses have sort of taken on lots of debt just to survive. How sustainable do you think this is? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated conundrum. So, so first of all, there's not a lot of historical precedent for pandemics, right? So the last ones were quite some time ago. So we're comparing the economy uh, today to the 1920s, right? Things are so different. It's, it's difficult to take a lot of learnings from that. But recessions and economic uncertainty, like, you know, is a cyclical thing that we've all lived through numerous times in our lifetime, or at least I have. And so there are well-known learnings. And, and, you know, one of the highest level learnings are that the, the number one predictor of your business success in a recession is liquidity, right? Like it's how good your balance sheet is. And so it is absolutely true that businesses that had cash on hand or access to financial instruments had a disproportionate advantage versus businesses that were highly leveraged and had limited access to capital 
um, before the pandemic. But, you know, a corollary there is that if necessary, uh, it is smart to extend yourself in open lines of credit to get through these these um, circumstances, right? And so however the equation was on the benefits and detriments to taking out a loan or using a personal credit card or, you know, any other debt instrument before the pandemic, the, the calculus is more in your favor to do it during the pandemic. And one of the reasons is a bunch of your competitors won't do that. And frankly, ultimately won't survive the pandemic, right? And so the people that are able to get through these like peak points by any means necessary, including, you know, putting a lot of debt on a personal credit card are likely to have a larger potential market with fewer competitors on the other side. So that's the the silver lining, comma, you know, you've, you've got to have a plan uh, to get out from under that debt if the way that you capitalize the company was, you know, some unfavorable financial instrument like a personal credit card. And so you have to simultaneously be thinking about, you know, what the most important investments are to make for the future. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about making investments to bring your digital in-house instead of outsourcing it. But at the same time, this is absolutely not the time to be doing extravagant expending and, you know, make sort of optional investments in the in in the potential future of your business. Um, it's really a time to execute austerity measures and get as economically frugal as you can and, you know, frankly, pay down that debt as much as you can of, over the next several years. Small business owners have been telling me they never had a lot of liquidity in the first place. They've got people to pay. They've got inventory to buy. I think there are a lot of people out there who feel the government are helping out bigger businesses that are not doing too well because they were unsustainable in the first place. Do you think it's a little unfair? Oh, it, it, it's unquestionably unfair, right? So the, you know, um, I mean, certainly the economy and, and life are are fun, <laughs> fundamentally unfair. Um, but this, this is an acute example. Like there, uh, you know, there are endemic reasons that large businesses um, are disproportionately advantaged in this pandemic. But one of them is access to cash and capital and financial vehicles that that just simply aren't available to small businesses. Right. And so, you know, non-governmental ways of weathering the storm, there are more tools in, you know, Walmart or Target or Procter and Gamble's um arsenal than are available for the mom and pop, right? And so then very appropriately, you know, worldwide governments have figured out how to provide assistance. Like I, from my perspective, not enough assistance, but when they put that assistance out there, the, the fact that like a significant chunk, or in many cases, a majority of that money went, went to these bigger businesses, both, it seems unfair and it's actually not prudent because those businesses had other ways to survive, whereas the small businesses often didn't. Right. And, you know, when we look at total employment in the U.S., the overwhelming majority of small businesses, when we look at economic uh, activity, the overwhelming majority of small businesses. And so like uh, aid programs that disproportionately aid big businesses is uh, bad economic policy. Like that becomes a very political uh, issue here in the U.S. and I imagine, you know, elsewhere as well. Complicating all of this is the the uniqueness of the pandemic. So a, a weird byproduct of the pandemic is the majority of small businesses in the U.S. commingle their personal finances and their business finances. Right. So they you know, they they look to our, our tax uh, entity in the U.S., the IRS, they look like a like an individual to the IRS, um, and their their business finances are are commingled with their personal finances. And a an unexpected outcome of the pandemic is the savings rate shot wildly up in the pandemic, right? And so, you know, middle and upper income people in North America actually. Um, economically fared pretty well in the pandemic. Um, and in, in many cases, lower income people uh, got extra help through through a variety of government programs that we implemented, prim- you know, the extended unemployment um, and these these economic stimulus checks. So, so a lot of Americans got more income than they traditionally did and they spent less. They spent a lot less money on services. They spent a lot less money going to restaurants um, and, you know, they were economically insecure, so they were more conservative and spent less. Uh, uh, so so there's this weird thing that the 
the economy took the biggest hit it ever has and the GDP is going to go down something like three or four percent. But the savings rate peaked to an unprecedented level in the U.S. And a lot of that is is small businesses that, you know, were able at the beginning of this to save more money. Now, as as the pandemic has has extended on and unfortunately, I think at least some impacts of the pandemic are likely to to carry over through most of 2021, um, we're predictably seeing those savings rates dwindle. And, you know, my own prediction is that the health issues related to COVID are going to mitigate a lot faster than the economic issues. So I, I'm optimistic that, you know, in the next 12 months, uh, we're, we're going to miraculously have have uh, sort of solved for the, the virus, um, but we're still probably going to have a, you know, two or three year hangover of a recession from it. And that's going to put a new wave of economic hardship on customers of small businesses and small businesses. So that's going to be a, a challenging, you know, and important thing to watch over the next 12 months. You're right. During this crisis, a, a lot of people have been laid off. There's a lot of doom and gloom. But amongst that, there's loads of nine to fivers working from home, saving money because it's quite difficult to spend it at the moment. When things calm down a little, what will it take for small businesses to prize those people away from their cash? and make them confident to spend it again. Yeah, well, this is interesting. So I, I mentioned earlier the 1920s. In uh, 1918, we had this, this big pandemic, like arguably the, the worst health incident in the history of the world, uh, the, the um, influenza plague, like sometimes called the Spanish flu, you know, that killed more people than any other pandemic. And we saw a lot of these same kind of economic situations that created huge uh, economic worldwide catastrophe and put, you know, a bunch of people into economic distress and spending slowed way down and people, you know, only only spent on the absolute essentials. But that was followed by a period that we call the roaring 20s. Um, and so, you know, as as things from the uh, a great world war that happened in 1918 and then this pandemic from 1918 to 1920 went away, there was sort of a, a backlash and people uh, became extravagant spenders and it, it really ushered in an era of economic prosperity. And so there there is precedent and reason to believe that all these people that have been cooped up in their home and haven't been able to take a vacation and haven't been able to make frivolous uh, investments are likely to over index on some of those things when the opportunity presents itself to do again. And so when I say like, man, you know, big borrow or steal or do whatever we have to do to survive this period, um, that there's likely to be a boom on the other side. Uh, you know, that's that's really what we we want to be thinking about as a small business is, is how do we responsibly get to 1924 and kind of relive the Roaring Twenties in in uh, in this century. I mean, the Roaring Twenties were followed by the worst depression of all time. So you're not really filling me with confidence here, Jason. Yeah, although I'm assuming I'm going to be uh, out of all, all of the, this economic concern by the time that happens. <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to Making It Work. Coming up. If you were a less able-bodied person and you got used to your FedEx carrier bringing that 20 or 30 pound bag of dog food to your house, you're probably not in a rush to go back to driving to the store and lugging that bag of dog food through the parking lot and dragging it into your house. And so a lot of those consumer changes are likely to be permanent. So I think you need to be thoughtful about your customer base in your category and decide how those customers are are likely to use the store going forward. And to me, the best way is not to listen to a podcast or get advice from a talking head like Jason. It's to go talk to those customers and watch them as much as possible and see what they're trying to do. Are you telling our listeners to, uh, to turn off the podcast, Jason? When COVID eases, what part will brick and mortar play? So we saw even before there was a demand for experiences and greater personalization. Will we see people visiting brick and mortar primarily for that purpose? Yeah, well, the, the truthful answer, that's a great question. The truthful answer is, I don't know, right? Like I have a hypothesis, um, but nobody's very good at predicting the future. 
I like to think of um, all of the changes in COVID in, I like to put them into one of two buckets. I, I have what I call one-way doors and two-way doors, right? So a two-way door is something that changed in COVID. Someone walked through a door um, and there's very little friction to walk back through that door after COVID, right? So yeah, I used to get half my calories from restaurants and half my calories from grocery stores. Now I'm getting 90% of my calories through uh, grocery stores, that likely is not a permanent change, right? When the pandemic's over, I'm probably going to enjoy going back to a restaurant. And in fact, I might initially go to more restaurants than I used to because I miss them so much, right? So that's a two-way door. Other doors are a one-way door. Once a customer walks through it, they're less likely to walk back through it and go back to how they used to do things, right? So if I used to be a member of a gym and I paid a monthly fee and I bought a $3,000 Peloton to exercise during the pandemic... I'm probably not just going to leave my Peloton in the corner and go back to paying the gym as soon as the pandemic's over. So permanently, we've probably seen a shift from gyms to home fitness. Not a complete shift, but a, you know, a meaningful shift. And so in the retail space, there are a number of these what I call one-way doors. Like you know, People that have learned how to shop for groceries online, they're for sure going to continue to use grocery stores and physical stores are going to continue to be important. But it's very likely that customers will permanently keep a portion of their grocery shopping business online for the rest of life. Now that they have an account, now that they've learned how to do it. If you were a less able-bodied person and you got used to your FedEx carrier bringing that 20 or 30 pound bag of dog food to your house, you're probably not in a rush to go back to driving to the store and lugging that bag of dog food through the parking lot and dragging it into your house. And so a lot of those consumer changes are likely to be permanent. Um, and so for sure, if you were in a business that wasn't very digitally impacted before and got digitally impacted by COVID, you should expect that uh, a significant portion of your customers will continue to shop digitally. And what that really means is stores are still important. People are still going to visit stores. But the way in which the customer uses that store is likely to change, right? Like there's replenishment products that nobody gets joy out of shopping for, right? Like very few people relish shopping for paper towels, for example. And so we should expect that people are going to go to the store less to get paper towels. And there's, you know, grocery stores are built on this kind of center store concept that there are consumable replenishment items in the middle of the store that you go to because you need to. And then you discover all this expensive higher margin stuff on the edges of that grocery store while you're there. Many of those replenishment trips are likely to go away and be replaced by digital. And so you're going to have to think of new reasons for the customer to visit your store. In many cases, the economics of delivering perishable groceries to a consumer's home aren't very flattering. And so, you know, curbside pickup is likely to be a dominant uh, form of, of commerce moving forward. And, and that still relies on stores. But maybe what that means is you invest in a, a few less shelves and merchandising displays for customers to pick up their own products in your store. And you invest in more automation to pick and pack uh, orders to be ready for customers to pick up at your, your curbside, for example. And so, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of changes like that where stores are still important, but the way customers use those stores is somewhat different. And then I know this is a long answer to your, your short, concise question, but the, you know, you specifically mentioned something we talked a lot about pre-pandemic experiential retail, right? And, and, you know, there was this general premise that, Hey, if, if you just wanted, you know, uh, low friction catalog shopping that the Amazons and Alibaba of the world were winning. And so the main reason people would want to go to stores is for an experience you couldn't get online. And so, you know, a lot of talking heads like me were advocating, uh, that if you're going to have brick and mortar stores, you really need to invest in upping the experience and making it more differentiated and more more premium. And I have to be honest, I was not one of those talking heads. There are a lot of occasions when that strategy does make sense, but there's no evidence that that's a universally good strategy. And frankly, a lot of people that were advocating that were people that made money on selling tools to retailers that they could use to make their stores more experiential. So I, I, I just think you need to be a little more thoughtful. Like there are categories and segments of customers where they are going to go to a physical store because it has a coffee shop in it or a cafe in it that they love um, or, uh, you know, a refrigerator where you can try on the coats and walk into the, the refrigerator and experience it, it being in the cold. But in many cases, 
that's not why customers are still going to want to go to a store. They're going to want to go to a store to discover new products they didn't know existed, or they're going to want to go to a store to get services that help them better utilize the products they have, or they're going to want to go to a store for you know, some aspects of omni-channel fulfillment. So I think you need to be thoughtful about your customer base and your category and decide you know, how those customers are, are likely to use the store going forward. And to me, the best way is not to listen to a podcast or get advice from a talking head like Jason. It's to go talk to those customers and watch them as much as possible and see what they're trying to do. Are you telling our listeners to, uh, to turn off the podcast, Jason? No, here's the beauty. Uh, while you're driving <laughs> to your customer's home to learn from them, you should be listening to the podcast. And while you're on that Peloton bike, you should be listening to that podcast. So you're, you're the one exception. I appreciate it. I appreciate the promo. So you're saying that nostalgia of going back to a physical store will be very short-lived. People might do that for one or two months after restrictions are eased. And this sea change we've seen in how people buy their goods will just continue. I think on the aggregate, that's true. I think all of our parents that didn't have an online account and didn't know you could order dog food online, like, you know, now now that they've done it once and they have that account and their passwords saved in their browser um, and their credit card information is stored on that, that e-commerce site, they're likely to continue using that, right? And so I think it's a mistake to just say, oh, you know, people are going to permanently go back to how they were behaving pre-pandemic, you know, at their earliest convenience. And most of the people that I see hoping for that are people that don't feel like they're going to be good at adapting to to new consumers' behavior. So they have sort of a self-interest in, in hoping that's how it plays out. But I think that would be a risky assumption to make. Let's switch from consumer trends to entrepreneurs then, specifically small business owners. A lot of them have spoken to me about managing expectations when it comes to so-called free shipping and next day shipping. Is providing this a, a do or die scenario for small businesses? Yeah, well, I got super excited from the beginning of your question because I thought we were going to talk about like, you know, things small businesses could do to win. And then you got all Debbie Downer by bringing up one of the like systemic challenges for small businesses. Uh, <laughs> I don't know who Debbie Downer is, but I'll take it as a compliment. Yeah. I, I, now that you mention it, I've used that phrase all the time and I, I have no idea who she is either. Um <laughs> Here's the thing. I'm a big fan of not of not asking customers how they're going to behave or how they want to behave, what we would call sort of stated preferences. I'm a big fan of learning about consumer behavior from what we can see customers doing, what, what we call observed preferences. And there's an overwhelming amount of evidence uh, that customers want fast, free shipping and that they're, they're not very interested in paying the what they consider taxes um, on things like delivery. And so it's absolutely true that um, when you offer free shipping to a customer, you sell much more. And when we test, for example, you know, free shipping, which has a $6 value against a, a $9 discount offer, customers will pick the free shipping over the more valuable offer like every day and twice on Sunday. So it's a super important amenity. So that's the bad news um, because I know the, the unit economics of offering free fast shipping are, are challenging in, in many businesses and many product categories. But the good news is uh, by my count, there's approximately 160 ways to offer free shipping. Right. And, and free shipping doesn't always mean, you know, FedEx priority overnight. Right. Like, you know, free shipping can mean free pickup at my curbside um, in an omnichannel experience. It can mean free shipping in a 50 mile radius of my store. It, it can mean free shipping, you know, on purchases over a hundred dollars. Like there, there's a, a whole host of business models I can implement that let me put the giant magic words on my website, free shipping. And I have learned through through observed behaviors that putting those giant magic words is super important, but it's not always a completely rational decision on the part of the consumer. And so there, there are lots of ways to offer free shipping that are more economically favorable to the small business and to the retailer. How about dealing with returns then? Because there are selfish six foot four people like me who don't know whether to order the large or the extra large. So they buy both intending to send one back. How are small businesses supposed to cope with that extra cost? 
Yeah. And annoyingly, by the way, we, we taught you to shop like that, right? The, you know, originally we were worried no one would want to buy clothes online or shoes online. And then Zappo said like, oh, well, the way you do it is you buy two pair of shoes and send the other ones back to us. No questions asked. And so we, we taught consumers how to do that unprofitable behavior. And now we're living with a hangover as a result of that. Um, so you're, you're exactly right in the problem. Here's the good news for small businesses on that. I actually think small businesses have a systemic advantage in the returns problem. So, you know, one of the things we always imagine our competitors are much better than they are, right? And so all of us, you know, look at our our big, you know, national chain competitors and we imagine that they're these, you know, super smart people with unlimited resources that can do all these things we can't do. At their scale, there's a bunch of things that are actually harder to do than it is for me as an independent business to do. And one of them is to disposition all that return merchandise, right? So when you buy two sizes of pants from a big retailer and you return one pair of those pants, there's a tragically high likelihood that those pants are going to end up in a landfill. That wasn't the economically smart thing for that big retailer to do. They should try to resell those pants as new, or if they can't, they should sell them to a a liquidator like a TJ Maxx or something like that, or sell them to someone that's going to sell them in another country, or at the very least, like recycle them, right? Like there's this whole cascade of things a smart retailer ought to do to disposition that return merchandise. Um, But in many cases, if you're a huge retailer, you just get so much stuff that you don't have the bandwidth to process it and make a smart decision about how to disposition it. But a small business does. So it's often the case that the small business's cost for processing those returns is much lower than the large business's cost. And customers, you think customers want uh, fast, free, low-friction shipping. Even more so, they want fast, free, low-friction returns. And uh, low-friction returns often mean that some labor is required, right? Like, I don't want to seal a box. I don't want to print out a label and put it on that box. I just want to be able to uh, stop by your store on my way to soccer practice and uh, and soccer's uh, football in, in Amsterdam, I know. The, the, yeah. Very culturally sensitive of you, thanks. Yeah, I try. I'm an Ajax fan. So um, there are lots of ways in which that small business can make returns easier and low friction for a customer than, for example, a Walmart can, right? And so if I'm a small business, I want to think about those things that are hard for my big chain competitors to do. And I want to lean into those things. And then after I figured out how to execute them cost effectively, whether that's open box returns or curbside returns, or, you know, maybe it's even returns to some other convenient location in my town. And I'm doing a much better job of monetizing the the returned inventory than my big competitor. Then I want to start marketing the fact that, hey, it's way easier to return stuff at, at Joe's House of Pants than it is to return stuff at, uh, you know, the big chain apparel store. You've talked in the past about how important it is for companies to build trust with users. How can small businesses do this online? What's the best way? So, A, I would say personalize your website. And by that, what I don't mean is, you know, have an automatic recommendation engine that recommends stuff based on what they bought before. I mean, that's a a very good tactic that might work well for you. But by personalize, what I mean is um, make it feel like I'm doing business with you, an individual and proprietor of the store, not with some, you know, robot or computer, right? Like have pictures of your employees on the website, you know, have it feel like you're communicating with me through the website rather than the website is some separate dispassionate entity. And then, you know, do learn as much as you can about the customer and use those learnings to give the customer the the experience they really want, right? So going back to uh, an apparel example, um, if I go to some apparel site I've never shot from before and I'm not sure whether I'm, you know, what size pants I'm in in that, that apparel, I'm going to buy two pair of pants, right? And I'll return the ones I don't want, which is hugely expensive to that retailer. But if I have a relationship with you and I've bought eight pair of pants in the past and and you know exactly what size pants fit me and now I'm buying a new brand from you and you know they run a little smaller, tell me that and use what you know about me to help me find the first right size and remind me how easy it will be to swap that out. Like I'll come to your house with the other size pants if these don't fit, right? That's something a big chain is never going to offer to do. Um, And as a result, I can both get you to buy one pair instead of two pairs so I can save return costs and I can increase 
your trust and confidence in me and your willingness to buy from me instead of some, you know, dispassionate random, you know, web website that doesn't know me as well as you do. So I think it, this is important for all retailers, but especially for small businesses. It's super important to invest in knowing the customer and providing them a bespoke experience based on what you know about them. A lot of big companies are good at knowing the customer. They actually collect a lot of information about the customer, but they're colossally bad at paying that information off by giving the customer a better experience, right? And I say that as someone that mainly works with those big customers trying to help them. Do you encourage your big clients then to try and replicate the small business experience? Or do you tell them to focus on economies of scale, reliability, yeah, no. Well, so both, right? Certainly, if you have some systemic advantage because of your size, you do want to lean into that advantage and have a better cost basis than your competitors and all those sorts of things. But absolutely, the future is more personalized, trustful interactions. And so, you know, if I was a big retailer and now my foot traffic is down 25% because of COVID, my sales might be up. Customers might be buying more stuff from me, but they're visiting my store less often. Um, and they're seeing my employees in that store less often, right? And so, you know, a big thing we're working on with a lot of big chains is helping them use video chat and telepresence to have the personality of those individual store employees in an online environment. And so you're, you're actually seeing the biggest companies in the ecosystem. You're seeing Macy's turning all those in-store sales associates into online influencers. You're seeing Walmart put a bunch of Walmart associates on TikTok. You know, you're seeing a lot of interesting initiatives where even the biggest customers are trying to humanize their customer experience. And part of that's because they're all competing with Amazon, right? Like there's not a lot of meetings at Walmart talking about how to compete against a small business, but there's a lot of meetings at Amazon at Walmart talking about how to compete with Amazon. And their belief is, wow, Amazon's the highly efficient impersonal experience. So I'm gonna counter that by being more personal. And so, you know, even the Walmarts of the world are trying to figure out how to be more personal. And if I'm a small business, one of the things, the advantages I have is, my associates and employees are much better than that national chains employees, and they tend to have much longer seniority and tenure. Um, and so that's, you know, even a bigger advantage for me as a small business than it is for a big chain like, a, you know, a Macy's or a Walmart or something. Talking about online marketplaces like Amazon, and forgive my, uh, my janky similes here, but it feels like the world is in a bit of an online strip mall at the moment. Do you think small businesses, by developing a closer relationship with, with their clients and controlling their message, can create a kind of more online main street, if that makes any sense? Yeah, no, I think it totally does, right? So if being a third-party seller and selling your stuff on Amazon or Walmart Marketplace is the strip mall, then like you know, renting a, a, a site from Shopify and launching your own experience where you, you know, you're directly building a relationship with the customer is, is sort of your main street experience. Right. And, uh, this, this is a fundamental question every business has is like, to what extent should I be participating in those strip mall experiences? I don't like them as much. They're not as profitable. Do I need to do them? And the answer is different for every business in every category, but in general, the reason that strip malls exist is because consumers like them and there's a lot of traffic at strip malls. So like, you know, just despite the fact that some of us might look down our nose at the customer experience, the reality is uh, that that's where a lot of buying intent is. So I do think most businesses need to be in, uh, if we're straining this metaphor too much, need to be in that that strip mall, right? To say it more directly, I do think the majority of businesses, it makes sense to be on Facebook and on uh, Amazon, um, and, and be, you know, trying to sell stuff to all the buying intent that is on those channels. But I think you need to remember that the traffic there is not yours. You're renting it and you're actually paying a very high rate for that traffic. So your, your goal should never be to sell a bunch of stuff on Amazon. Like you should be on Amazon because that's where the customer is and, and uh, you need to sell stuff to there. But your goal is to build a direct relationship with that customer and sell stuff to them without Amazon. And so I, I really hate it when I see small businesses that are like, oh, I can just sell stuff on Amazon and I don't even need my own e-commerce site or I don't even need my own digital presence. And to me, that's a horrible mistake because 
you're doomed to rent your customer for the rest of life and never have your own customers. And, you know, Amazon has a lot of levers to pull to shift that customer's loyalty to things that are not you. So I would, you know, have a blended strategy where I, you know, I'm, I'm selling stuff on those platforms when it makes economic sense. But what I'm putting all of my passion into is building my own direct customer base that buy direct from me through my physical store or through the physical website that I own or those kind of vehicles. And to be blunt about it, I call these businesses that exclusively try to sell on Facebook or Amazon, I call them digital sharecroppers because they're literally putting a bunch of labor into growing crops uh, on land they don't own. You know, those digital platforms are in the business of selling their traffic to the highest bidder. And if tomorrow someone wants to pay more for that customer than you did yesterday, they're going to take that customer away from you and give it to that higher bidder. And so it's it's a, uh, you know, to me, it's short-sighted to exclusively play on those marketplaces. 2021 is looking a little brighter, right? But it might also be putting us in a false sense of security. There's a, there's a lot of small businesses that are, that are still really, really struggling out there. So for those of them that are listening to this podcast, give me some good news, Jason. What's your... What's your message of positivity? Everything is cyclical. Everything ends. Um, the as, as one epidemiologist told me, pandemics are not new to our species. They're just new to us, right? Like there have been a lot of pandemics in the history of the world, and we've we've survived them all and thrived on the other end of all of them. And we frankly had much more rudimentary tools to fight them than we had now. Like this is the first time in human history that we've ever been able to like create a therapy in real time that essentially is an antidote to a pandemic. So it's remarkable. Um, and so in many ways, as you know, bad as this feels in the moment, this is far less bad than, than any previous pandemic. So there is going to be another side. There's reason for optimism. There are going to be lots of thriving businesses on the other side. That's the good news. The bad news is, in my personal experience, people tend to overestimate how quickly the effects of these things will abate, right? And so, you know, for all of last year, I had people that were in a kind of quarterly mode, like, I just need to get through next quarter, next quarter is going to be better. And that the science was pretty clear that it wasn't going to be better next quarter, right? And now we have all this vaccine news in the US, which is super exciting. And it's a great reason for optimism. But a lot of people take that too far and say like, oh, this, the impact of this pandemic is going to be over in Q2 when everyone's vaccinated. And that still is probably unrealistic, right? Like we're still probably dealing with a, a significant illness and virus through most of this year. And then, you know, this event has caused a recession and we're probably not going to immediately come out of that recession this year. So I, w- I would say that the good news is there is a bright light at the end of the tunnel. The bad news is the tunnel may be a, a little longer than the most optimistic among us want it to be. Okay. Jason Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Retail Geek. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Oh my gosh, Tom, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up next time, some more familiar voices. To me, innovation is the ability to either create something out of nothing to be innovative or take something already existing and make it better. When I think of innovation, I think of being the first to market with something. We were the first ones to put black characters on backpacks. We're not the only ones now, and it's fine. But how do we now always stay a step ahead? And that's one of the biggest challenges. Because, you know, at some point, I'm going to run out of ideas. It's almost uh, like slimy saying that word. Innovation has been used so much. But innovation as an entrepreneur, that, that's part of what you do. I mean, that's it's like how, how important are your lungs to breathing? That's it for this special episode of Making It Work. Tell us what you think by rating this podcast and leaving a comment. We'd also love to know what you think of this special with Jason, so send us your thoughts to makingitwork at fedex.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. That way you won't miss a thing. A big thanks to our expert, Jason Goldberg, for taking the time to chat. You can find him on Twitter at RetailGeek or on RetailGeek.com. Making It Work is produced by Yolene Marguerite, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg, with creative direction from Jeroen von Koningshoven. Music by Fresh Big Mouth, who created this song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub in Memphis, Tennessee. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin. <laughs>